History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia, episode 114, The Age of Heroes. The Achaemenid Persian Empire has fallen. Darius III and Artaxerxes V, Bessus, are both dead. Alexander III of Macedon, Alexander the Great, Lord of all Asia, reigns supreme. We are now in the second episode of a much-needed break from the narrative to discuss some of the cultural and religious legacy of this upheaval in world history. Last time, I discussed the legacy of Alexander in Iranian and Zoroastrian tradition, specifically his negative characterization as a conqueror and a destroyer of Zoroastrian life. Today, we are shifting just a bit into how the Achaemenids were remembered, or more accurately, how they were forgotten. It may seem strange today when Cyrus the Great and the Achaemenid Faravahar are icons of Iranian history and culture, but prior to the modern period, really prior to the 1800s, the Achaemenids had very little presence in Iranian culture for about 1,500 years. Understanding how exactly that happened is difficult due to the extreme lack of Iranian sources under Hellenistic, aka post-Alexandrian, and later Arsacid Parthian rule. But by the time you reach the Sassanid Persian kings of the 3rd to 7th centuries CE, the likes of Cyrus and Darius are functionally gone from the Iranian record. Surely there must have been people within the Sassanid Empire that knew about them. Greek literature still circulated, and their contemporaries in Rome clearly knew about Achaemenid history to some degree, After all, it's those Romans who are writing the Alexandrian sources that I've been using. But that doesn't change the fact that they are entirely absent from Sassanid records. This will be a topic I revisit in the future, when we actually get to the Sassanids themselves. 
but if I'm optimistic, I'd guess that will be around, like, 2030. Seeing as this is also a major part of the Achaemenid legacy, it's probably worth addressing right now. There are many different components to this issue, and we don't really need to explore all of them in detail today, but it all does need to be addressed. So let's just start with how in the world the Achaemenids weren't just omnipresent in the Iranian cultural psyche after their downfall. When you study all this as history, especially the way I do, going from the Elamites to the Medes and all the way to the Arab conquest as a single project, it is very easy to see the direct continuity from one step to the next. We know how each transition took place, when and why new locations and people became important, and can even see how various aspects of culture and daily life transitioned from one thing to the next over a period of centuries or millennia. This is all stuff that students of history have to understand. But we also have to remember that the average person living through it all did not see things that way. We're talking about events that took place over the course of more than 700 years. Think about the average person today and their relationship with our own culture. Or more likely, whatever culture theirs derives from in the year 1323 we have significantly better record-keeping from that point to now than ancient people would have, and most people still mythologize and misunderstand the Middle Ages to such a degree that it might as well be fictional. Many people, either because they struggle to visualize something so alien to their day-to-day -day life, or because it suits their ideology, like to portray massive cultural continuity that is simply not reflected in historical records. In that way, modern people are very similar to the Sassanid-era Iranians. Now, imagine if, sometime around the year 1600, your culture stopped using its native writing system. That's a thing that happens, so it may be easier for some of you than others. What if you and all your neighbors started losing their writing system to new models? That's another layer of complexity. What if, on top of all that, political power and economic prosperity shifted away from the place where all of those old records were kept and studied to a new foreign invader? Again, this is a thing that happens throughout history, it may be pretty easy for some of you to imagine this, say if you're a Native American. If we're comparing the fall of the Achaemenids to 1600 CE, that might be really easy to visualize for some people. Would history up to that point accurately be remembered? The answer is no because all of this happened to many cultures about 400 years ago, and that history is not well-remembered or documented, even with the advances in record-keeping technology and historical practice that came about in the modern period. 
This is exactly what happened to the Achaemenids as well. But it wasn't the end of things. The Sassanid dynasty rose to power in no small part thanks to the support of the Zoroastrian clergy and a wave of religious reformism. An integral part of their identity and legitimacy was tracing their lineage back to Ahura Mazda, or Ormazd as he was called in Middle Persian, by way of a direct royal lineage all the way back to the creation of humanity. The actual flow of history doesn't really allow for that. The gaps in Persian rule were too long, and there was no record or claim to that kind of primordial lineage before the Sassanids. It's not like they could graft on to the family tree of some other line of kings. Nobody else had done this in Iran before. Even if they had it would have flowed through the Arsacid Parthian kings that the first Sassanid, Ardashir I, was trying to overthrow, and everyone around knew that the Sassanid family did not have ties to the Arsacids. However, they could easily draw a connection to the legendary and mythological lines from religious figures, and there would be no way to dispute that because the records simply didn't exist. The Sassanids were already part of the Zoroastrian clerical establishment as well, descending from a sort of priest-king in Pars, and may have already had a version of this lineage in circulation to begin with. Finally, you have to stack on top of all that the growing belief in millenarianism, among late antique Zoroastrians. That is a belief that a 1,000-year period of blessings and religious renewal is imminent, usually tied to the further belief in 1,000-year cycles of good and evil or 1,000-year periods of religious development in general. The same structure has been popular in various strains of Christianity over the centuries, and late antique and early medieval Zoroastrianism had similar sets of viewpoints. However, for that to make sense within their theology, they had to be within 1,000 years of Zoroaster himself, near the end of a steady decline from the prophet's initial revelation. Of course, by most modern estimates based on the Gothas, the Sassanids were already about 1,400 years post-Zoroaster. But their version of history corrected for this. The life of Zoroaster, or Zartosht as they called him, was repositioned to about 700 years before Ardashir I, the equivalent of the 6th century BCE. The entirety of the post-Alexander Hellenistic period and many of the Parthian kings were removed from the timeline as well, creating a version of history that satisfied both the political and religious philosophies of the Sassanid state. Like many apocalyptic religious movements in history, the timeline was continuously revised as it became clear that the end times just weren't happening according to schedule. This does lead to an odd sort of hybridization in modern Zoroastrianism, where many of the texts that sprung out of this millenarian psychology are still important, 
but the millenarianism itself has largely fallen to the wayside. The end result is a version of history that flows from creation through a direct lineage of blessed rulers called the Pishadadian dynasty, and then into a line called the Kayanian dynasty, at which point this mythic, legendary version of history is forced to reconcile with the one piece of a Caymanid history that was so ingrained in Zoroastrianism it could not be ignored. The accursed Alexander, who was followed by centuries of chaos, not under Macedonian rule, but rather immediately by the Arsacid Parthians before the triumph of Ardashir in the dawn of the Sassanid Age. That's the version of history that they told, and it stems largely, if not entirely, from the official court history of the Sassanids, called the Quadenamag, or the Book of Lords. The text itself is now lost to us, but it is reflected in several surviving Sassanid documents, as well as Abul Qasem Firdosi Tusi's Shanima, the Book of Kings, and the Persian National Epic from the 11th century CE, as well as some Perso-Arabic works like the Tariq al-Tabari. And as you'll see, the further we go through history the more I'm absolutely gonna butcher some pronunciations. Some modern historians like Abalala Sudavar try to identify stories in this Sassanid tradition where the Achaemenid kings are preserved under different names, suggesting that stories about the Achaemenids were kept in Iranian storytelling tradition, but recast as more legendary heroes as time went on. Others, like Turaj Darii, view this as a fruitless effort that simply notices similar patterns and works backwards from the assumption that the ancients must have held the Achaemenids in the same high regard that we do today. As usual, I don't think either extreme is right, and to his credit, Darii is not nearly as staunch in his interpretation as his academic opponents. I do think that many scholars tend to arrive at the wrong comparisons, especially by way of Cyrus the Great. Cyrus is a titan in modern interpretations of ancient Iranian history, but even by the end of the 5th century BCE, he doesn't appear to have been a crucial figure in the Achaemenid dynastic mythos there's no real reason to think that he would have been nearly as much a staple as modern observers want him to be in these ancient traditions. For example, Sudavar interprets the story of Feridun and the serpent king Zahak as an adaptation of Cyrus and Astyages. I challenge anyone to read that story and not see it as much closer to the story of Darius and Bardia, right down to the false king and the lying priest. That said, Darii hits much, much closer to my personal mark. There wasn't an intentional effort to mix and match the Achaemenids with mythological figures. They simply weren't that important to the Persians 
and the wider Iranian world of the 3rd century CE as they are to us. They cared more about religious heroes, and gave the Achaemenid position in history to those heroes for a wide array of pragmatic and theological reasons. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. However, the actual Sassanid version of the story is not what I want to focus on today. That just makes more sense and will mean more when we get to the period where they developed. Instead, I want to address the versions of those stories that existed long before the Sassanids, because, ironically, many of the heroes that eventually supplanted the Achaemenids already existed in Iranian tradition during the Achaemenid period. They appear under the earlier Avestan forms of their names in the Avesta, particularly the Yashts, interacting with the Yazadas and other divinities. Even the dynastic name, Kayanian, stems from a title applied to many of these figures in the Avesta, Kavwi. By the Sassanid period, K was clearly interpreted as a word for king, and these Ks were linked together as a direct lineage of monarchs. There's not much sense of that in the Avesta, though. 
Instead, Kawi seems to be a title or epithet indicating their position as particularly important leaders of all sorts, including but not limited to kings and chieftains. The first Kayanian, Kavad, relates to a very obscure figure in the Avesta, Kawi Kawata. According to some commentaries on apparently lost sections of the Avesta, he was the first to establish kingship in Iran, and his seed, both in the biological and spiritual sense, was derived directly from the Kevarena, the Amesha Spenta who embodied divine right to rule. In the surviving Avesta, Kawata is really just a name. At some point, Kawata seems to have mixed with Hausrawa, whose name is adapted as two different figures in Sassanid-era tradition, one as the first king of all, and also a Kayanian named Kusro. But Kavad is given the credit for the battle against a Turanian king defeated by Hausrawa in the Avesta. After Kavad, we immediately hit a wrinkle. Most renditions of the Kayanian genealogy go straight from Kavad to Kavus, but chapter 35 of the Greater Bundahitian inserts several additional figures. According to that version, Kavad's son was Kapiva, who in turn had four sons, Arsh, Byarsh, Pisinang, and finally, Kavus. All four of them are honored with the title K and connect back to Kawis in the Fravardin Yasht, a hymn which seeks blessings from a whole array of ancient heroes. They are all known simply from a string of names with no additional context, though the Greater Bundahitian does present them in the same order, at least implying that this Avestan passage was eventually interpreted as a lineage. The same section of the Greater Bundahitian also elaborates on genealogical connections between many additional legendary and Avestan figures, each more obscure than the last, who are not identified as Kays, even though some are called Kawi in the Avesta. Hopefully that sort of makes sense. The fact that this version of the Kayanian dynasty only appears in the Greater Bundahitian, also called the Persian Bundahitian, is noteworthy. The simple or Indian Bundahitian reached its final form in the Parsi communities of northern India around the 9th century CE. In Iran, the same text continued to develop and have additional sections tacked on as late as the 13th century. Apparently, this expanded Kayanian genealogy was a relatively late and possibly exclusively Iranian interpretation of the Avestan Kawis. But, for the most part, Kavad's successor is a minor figure even in Middle Persian, where he is called Kavus. This is connected to an Avestan Kavi, Byarshan, 
Like the Kionians, only referenced in the Bundahitian, this is literally just known from a single reference to his name in a list of revered Kawis in the Fravardinyash. In later tradition, Kai Kavus is best known for constructing a flying throne and piloting it all the way to China. The third Kionian, Kai Kosro, finally provides an interesting bit of detail through his split personality. The name Kosro is a Persian derivation of the Avestan name Hausrawa, the one whose battle against the Turanians became part of Kavad's story in the Kayanian mythos. But Kawi Hausrawa makes another appearance in the Sasanid literature as Hosheng, the first ever human king and founder of the so-called Pishdadian dynasty of primordial mythic rulers. It's entirely possible that Hausrawa's appearance at the start of both dynasties represents two distinct storytelling traditions getting mixed together over time. However, it could also mean that the Kayanian Kosro is a distinct figure altogether, since Avestin Hausrawa was much more in common with Hosheng than this guy. Nevertheless, let's talk about Kawi Hausrawa. In the Avesta, he is called the Stallion of the Arya Lands and the one who puts together for command. He is also typically portrayed as both immortal and a very early figure appearing before the likes of Yima, a.k.a. Jamshid, one of the most famous Pishtadian kings of later literature. His vehicle of choice is depicted as the fastest of all two-horsed chariots, where he rode as the combatant while his companion Tusa served as the driver. On one occasion, Hausrawa and Tusa were engaged in a race against another Kawi, or Wasara, the course would take both chariot teams through a razura, a word variously translated as a pit or a thicket. In preparation for the race, Orwasara made offerings to the Yazada Vayu, patron divinity of the wind, while Hausrawa made his offerings to Anahita. The significance of the two sides praying to the different Yazadas isn't made clear, in large part because this story is just referenced in the Vendidad as context for a legal ruling, but the little bit of detail about champions of the wind and water racing one another really sounds like a classical myth about proving which element is faster. Unfortunately, the result of the race isn't recorded in the Avesta. But I'd hazard a guess, given that Anahita is much more prominent than Vayu, and that Hausrawa is much more prominent than Orwasara, that water won out. A chariot race is also referenced in the Abanyasht, dedicated to Anahita, so it's probably the same one. But in this section, it specifies that Hausrawa made his offerings at the shores of Lake Chechast. This is a body of water that appears several times in the Avesta and other Zoroastrian literature, 
described as wide, surging, warm, salty, and lifeless, but also free from harm. It was apparently a saltwater lake free from the normal taboo against saline water. By the Sasanid period, when religion and politics alike were more focused in western Iran than Central Asia, this was identified as Lake Ermia, which is loosely possible for the original, but unlikely. The more plausible identification is the Aral Sea, which could fit the description of lifeless, literally without animals, depending on salinity levels at the time. The only dead lake in the region, to my knowledge, is Lake Alakol, which would be too small to realistically fit the rest of the description. However, House Rawa wasn't just a charioteer. Like all great Avestan heroes, he was a warrior. In another story, he once again sacrificed to Anahita on the shore of Lake Chechast before doing battle right up against the lake. This conflict was against the Toranian, meaning non-Arya, brothers called Frondrasion and Karasawazda, known in Middle Persian literature by the more pronounceable names of Afrasiab and Karsivaz. In both the Avesta and later versions, these Turanian brothers had killed Hausrawa's father, and the Kawi was seeking righteous vengeance, wielding the same great cudgel used to battle the evil dragon Azi Dahaka, Middle Persian's Zahak. According to that later tradition, this was the battle that earned Kai Kusro the right to rule. In another battle against the Turanians, Hausrawa and Tusa rode into battle against the, quote, Brood of Vaisaka, known as the Sons of Vesa in the Shanimeh. This is implied to be part of a much larger war, but unfortunately the Abanyasht doesn't include many details. After Kei Kosro, the narrative is muddled a bit, with the heirs of Kosro dividing up the kingdom, but eventually the Kaonian genealogy leads us to Kei Loras, whose Avestan counterpart is Orwat Aspa. Orwat Aspa undoubtedly had legends and tales associated with him from a very early point, and the later literature about Kaylorasp reflects this. But in Avestan terms, we only know one thing about him, because he is only mentioned one time, once again in the Aban Yasht, as the father of Vishtaspa, the Kawi who became the prophet Zoroaster's first royal convert and benefactor. Then, suddenly, the information available to us explodes far beyond the scope of this episode, because naturally, Lorasp is succeeded by Kegoshtasp, the Middle Persian name for Vishtaspa, which is also rendered in Greek as Histaspes. This is also the first point where Kaonian and Avestan narratives begin to overlap with tentatively agreed-upon history. Sometime around 1200 BCE, Zoroaster began preaching his message to reform and won over Vishtaspa, 
The Kawi became the prophet's protector and a champion of the emerging Zoroastrian faith, and many Avestan texts reference his role as both an efficient, the holder of the divine Kivorena, and a warrior for the faith against the Kawis who were hostile towards Zoroaster. As always, later tradition expanded on this greatly with more detailed stories about Kegoshtasp and his exploits. This is the point where documented history, Avestan tradition, and Middle Iranian innovation get more obscure. Goshtasp's son, Esfandiar in modern Persian, Spandadat in Middle Persian, is not a K, but he is a devout warrior in service of the Prophet and features in many adventurous stories, including quite a lot of monster slaying, but he dies tragically in accordance with prophecy. The name Spendadat is similar to many names that are just one-off mentions in the Avesta, specifically those associated with the Amesha Spenta Armaiti. But since they are referenced without context, it's hard to say which is which, and even which are just variant spellings of the same name. In the later tradition, Esfandiar is succeeded by Bachman, Avestan Vohuman, a K who shares his name with the Amesha Spenta and embodiment of good thoughts, the same divinity who first presented revelation to Zoroaster. There is no apparent Avestan character equivalent, but some medieval Zoroastrian and Arabic sources present an odd historical tie-in. If you've got any red string and thumbtacks, now would be a good time to start setting up your conspiracy board. Bear with me here. In the 4th century CE, the Roman historian Ammianus Marcellinus identified the Vishtaspa of Zoroastrian tradition with Vishtaspa, the father of Darius the Great, a.k.a. Histaspes. This actually lines up rather well with the Sassanid official timeline that placed Zoroaster and Vishtaspa in the 6th century BCE, around the same time as the historical Histaspes and Cyrus the Great. Whether the Iranians themselves had made this connection between the two Vishtaspas, or it was an innovation from Ammianus, is very unclear. But when Arab historians started trying to reconcile both the Roman and Iranian traditions, they also used that connection. In the Kayanian tradition, Bachman is the grandson of Goshtasp, and in the Amianus interpretation, that position is filled in Achaemenid history by Xerxes. By the Roman period, some stories about Xerxes and Artaxerxes I had become mixed, most notably the story of Esther in the Bible. Similar names will have a tendency to do that as records go on. In the Bundahitian, Bachman is identified as the father of Sasan, the eponymous ancestor of the Sasanid dynasty. In the rest of Sasanid tradition, Sasan's father is called Ardashir, which is just the Middle Persian form of Artaxerxes. In other Middle Persian texts, Bachman is also called long-handed, 
an epithet ascribed to Artaxerxes I by the Greeks. According to some modern interpretations, Bachmann is at least partially inspired or mixed with vague memories of Artaxerxes I in later antiquity, meaning that the Sassanid ancestral Ardashir is intended to be Artaxerxes I, is, according to some interpretations, sort of. There's even a little bit of basis for this. The Parthian Arsacid dynasty claimed Artaxerxes II as their ancestral connection to the Achaemenids. By claiming some ancient Ardashir as their own ancestor, the early Sassanids were also claiming an element of the same legitimacy that the Arsacids had. However, there is a catch here. Outside of the Bundahitian, Ardashir, the father of Sasan, is generally treated as a descendant of Dara II, the final Kaonian, and the one very directly connected to the historical Darius III. The only way to reconcile this interpretation is that Bachman is Ardashir, is Artaxerxes I or II, is to say that Kai Dara II also absorbs some elements of the other Dariuses in Achaemenid history, which is totally plausible. However, if you got lost in all that explanation, you may see why most modern historians don't really bother to try and make these connections. There's just not much to actually support them. But it goes on. On top of all that, another Arabic tradition held that Bachman was, in fact, an alternative name for Cyrus, on the basis that there was a story of Bachman, while residing in Balk, a.k.a. Bactra, returning the Jews to Jerusalem, and even traveling there with them. When and how that story developed is extremely unclear because it only appears in two medieval sources. However, I wouldn't entirely confirm that this is a direct influence from Cyrus either. As we know, many Persian kings were involved in the restoration of Judea, including at least Artaxerxes I and likely Artaxerxes II. So the story of Bachman and the Jews could potentially also be the result of his association with Ardashir, the father of Sasan, who was maybe Artaxerxes I or II. Again, you get why historians don't get into this too much? But it goes on. Further enhancing Bachman's connections with Artaxerxes I, the Arab historian Al-Tabari states that Bachman's mother was Asturia, the Arabic form of biblical Esther, who, according to the biblical tradition, was the wife of Xerxes and the mother of his children, meaning that she would be the mother of Artaxerxes I, even though we know that historically that's not how it worked. Regardless, the end result is that many of the later Kayanians, especially Bachman, are deeply composite characters, mixing and matching historical elements from the Achaemenids, as well as both older and later storytelling traditions. Providing additional connections between Bachman and everyone from Cyrus to Cambyses to Artaxerxes II 
is his wife and successor, Homei Cherzad, literally Homai of noble birth. Once again, she is a composite figure with vague analogs to various elements of Achaemenid history and no direct Avestan antecedent. However, it is definitely worth noting that the Sassanid-era Zoroastrians saw no issue with including a queen in their histories, although her reign is associated with a period of turmoil. But even that isn't her fault, it's just the fallout from Bachman dying while she was still pregnant, and the quote-unquote Romans, really just meaning anyone from the West. Homai is alternately presented as either the daughter of an Egyptian king or the daughter-wife of Bachman himself. Hence my comparison to Artaxerxes II and his marriage to Atossa II. Upon Bachman's death, Homai is named regent and shortly later gives birth to a son named Dara, or Darab. Fearing for Darab, she eventually puts him in a box and floats it down the Euphrates, where the baby prince is found by a peasant worker. You know, the well-known Moses-Sargon Superman trope, which is also reminiscent of the story of the young Cyrus the Great being hidden with a peasant family. During Homai's reign, the Romans invade and she sends a general to combat them. The invaders are defeated, and in the course of the battle, this general finds Darab with his peasant foster family. And, like the story of Cyrus, the prince is immediately recognized due to his innate royalness. So Darab is brought home with a small army of captive Romans, who are used as forced labor. This too reflects various elements of the Greco-Persian Wars, and Achaemenid use of Greek captives to build their own monuments. At long last, we reach Darab and his son Dara II, who I discussed really as much as I can back in episode 104, The Darius Restoration, at which point there really isn't any sort of a Vestan connection to go back to. The final Kyanians are much more a blend of history and later legend than pre-Achaemenid religious tradition. That will have to do it for the Avestan Kyanians, the dynasty that replaced the Achaemenids in Persian memory. Next time, I will introduce a new episode format, because we need to meet the neighbors. Until then... If you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you will find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and plenty of other things including the support page to financially support this project. There are all sorts of ways to do that, but most importantly, there's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can sign up for a monthly subscription ranging from $1 to $20, and access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and discounted merchandise. Even if you don't want to subscribe, you can also visit the show's store, either through historyofpersiapodcast.com or historyofpersia.launchcart.com. You can also support this show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. 
I always love to see your feedback, but even better than that, tell your friends to listen to the History of Persia. Share it on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and just History of Persia on Twitter, and everything else that's trying to be Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.